Well, welcome. I'm glad to be here this morning. Um, I don't have green on, but I do have a green paper clip. And I may or may not have on green underwear. And if Mark doesn't come and yank me off the stage quick, we're all in trouble. I'm excited to be here. Um, Sherry and I are really thankful to this church family. Uh, You mean a ton to us. And as Todd was um, traveling this week with Grant, uh, he got to go to Washington, D.C. and see a bunch of monuments, and I just had a brief moment to talk to Todd. He said he had a great time, but because he was out of town this week, he offered me the opportunity to share a word of the Lord with you today. So as you know, uh, Todd's been uh, working through us uh, through Acts, and uh, we've come to Acts chapter 10. We're going to start in verse 23, so if you want to turn there, uh, we'll get there in a few minutes. What I want to do is recap a bit of what's happened so far, and in fact, it's quite a bit, so if you'll have to bear with me as we get going, but I think as we um, set our hearts on what our passage is today, it's helpful to remember where we've been, where we started, and where we've come. So if you remember after Jesus was crucified, buried, and resurrected, he appeared to the apostles and disciples for a period of 40 days. He fellowshiped with them, he ate and drank with them. And then as we read in Luke 24, 44 to 53, Jesus tells them that repentance and forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. And then he gives them instructions to stay in the city until he sends forth the promise from his father. Well, that was explained for us in John chapter 14. And then he says that they will be clothed with power from on high, obviously referring to the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2. Well, Luke continues writing Jesus' words in Acts chapter 1 verse 5, as Jesus tells the apostles they will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And then in verse 8, he explains that when the Holy Spirit comes upon them, they will receive power and that they will be his witnesses, quote, both in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest parts of the earth, but only to the Jewish people. Isn't that what it says? No, that's not what it says at all. I'm just seeing if you guys were awake. In this church, you guys are awake. No, of course that's not what it says. But our passage today will clearly show that there is no partiality or bias in the gospel message of Jesus Christ. He died as a payment of sins, my sins and your sins, so that if we believe in him and what he did on our behalf, we will spend eternity with him in heaven. And what a glorious day that will be. Can you imagine? But for now, let's continue. Well, a few days later, during Pentecost, well, roughly that was 10 days later, actually, since Pentecost, bear with me here, but Pentecost is also called the Feast of Weeks. Pentecost was 50 days after the beginning of another feast called the Feast of First Fruits, which corresponded actually in timing to Jesus' resurrection. Passover, Feast of Unleavened Bread, Feast of First Fruits would have been coinciding with Jesus' resurrection. Recall that Jesus had been resurrected for 40 days when he finally ascended into heaven. So the apostles had about 10 days to wait in Jerusalem and then Pentecost. Remember in Acts chapter 2, Jesus' promise is fulfilled and the apostles are filled with the Holy Spirit. 
And as you recall, they began speaking in tongues so that all present could hear them speaking, quote, the mighty deeds of God in their own language. And then Peter preached, and many people, around 3,000, came to faith in Christ and were baptized that day. The church was formed, and the text tells us that they were devoting themselves to teaching, the fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayer, Acts 2.42. And as we've seen in our study so far, throughout Acts chapters 3 through 9, many things occur. Preaching continued, persecution worsened, healings happened, the deacon ministry was established, Stephen was martyred. We see the evangelism of Philip, and we see the conversion of Saul. Peter raised Tabitha from the dead in Joppa. And he stays with Simon the Tanner, which is where he is in our passage today, at Simon the Tanner's house in Joppa. And by the way, Simon the Tanner was Jewish. But as a Tanner, he would most likely have been viewed as an outcast by practicing Jews because of his work. His cleanliness and perhaps his smell would have made him ceremonially unclean. However, he had likely become a Christian thus his willingness to support the mission and house Peter. And perhaps he was the first man of peace that Peter encountered when he entered Joppa. If you recall in Luke chapter 9, when Jesus sends out the apostles, he tells them to go, don't take a lot with you, and when you get to the town that you're going to, go to find the first man of peace, and if he offers you hospitality, stay there until you leave that town. So who knows, maybe Simon the tanner was the first man of peace that Peter encountered in Joppa. Well, you may recall from last week that Cornelius was a Roman centurion from the Italian cohort. He was described as a devout man, one who feared God. He gave alms to the Jewish people and prayed to God continually. And Luke wrote in the first part of Acts chapter 10 that Cornelius was visited by an angel who told, the, who told him to send men for Peter. The angel explains that Peter was at Simon the Tanner's house. Now, this could get a little confusing, right? Um, yeah, we're here to um, see Simon. Is this Simon's house? But not Simon that owns the house. We're here to see Simon who's staying with Simon who owns Simon's house, right? This could get a little confusing, couldn't it? So what forethought... Jesus had at changing Simon's name to Peter, although I'm not really sure that's the reason he did it, but nonetheless, sorry, I digress. But meanwhile, Peter was up on the rooftop around lunchtime. He fell into a trance while praying. He saw a sheet lowered with all kinds of animals, birds, and creeping things, and God told him, get up, kill, and eat, in verse 13. But Peter rejects the recommendation, and finally he's told, Quote, what God has cleansed no longer consider unholy, verse 15. This happened three times, and the text tells us that Peter was greatly perplexed. So God removes the restriction on food, kill and eat, he says. And I have to tell you, every time I read this passage, all I can think about is bacon. I mean, I know I'm a Gentile, I'm not a Jew, but bacon, really? Uh, Brad Hodge once told me he went to California, California and went to a place, was it called the 50-50? And it was 50% ground beef, 50% bacon, 
mixed together in a burger patty. Bacon. Delicious. <laughs> now, as a hunter, I also love this passage, and I'm really confused why we don't see jacked-up 4x4 pickups all over Texas with the Acts 10:13 plastered on the back of the window. I don't know, maybe I'll need to make a bumper sticker or something. But the problem is the food restrictions that are described in Acts chapter 10 are only part of the issue. In fact, they're, to me, the smaller part of the issue. Food restrictions were really only part of it. But see, the Lord was working on Peter's heart, knowing that he may resist what he was about to be asked to do, which was go to the Gentiles. But if those food restrictions were still in place, then Peter would have had a reason to say, no, 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 I can't do that. Because the Gentiles were traditionally seen as unclean or unholy based on the foods they ate, which often include, included meat sacrificed to idols. So the Spirit alerts Peter that men are looking for him and to go, quote, without misgivings. He meets the three men and explains their they explain their purpose, which brings us to our passage this morning. And let me tell you what we're going to see as we continue in chapter 10. The first, we're going to see the obedience and faith of Cornelius and Peter. We will see no partiality in the gospel message to the Gentiles. We will see the Spirit's work and people's response. And we will see that they all lived happily ever after. Well, not exactly. But before we get to our passage today, let's ask the Lord to bless our time and guide our discussion. Will you pray with me? Father, I thank you for this church family. I thank you for the gift of life that we have in your son. And I thank you for that gospel message that Peter will take to the, to the Gentiles here in a moment in our passage. But Lord, I pray right now that you would open our hearts, that we would understand that this gospel message is for all people that you have called to yourself. And Lord, we ask you to give us wisdom and direction as we look at this passage. I pray the words that I speak are the words that you have directed. And Father, I pray above all else that you would be exalted, that you would be praised, and that we would re remember the gift of life that you, that you have given us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So, Father, it's in his precious name that we pray. Amen. Well, join with me as I read in Acts chapter 10. We're going to start in verse 23 and go to verse 33, which is quite a lot, so bear with me. So, in verse 23, chapter 10, it says, So he, Peter, invited them in, them being the people from Cornelius' house, and gave them lodging. And on the next day, he got up and went away with them, and some of the brethren from Joppa accompanied him. On the following day, he entered Caesarea. Now Cornelius was waiting for them, and he had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet, worshipped him. But Peter raised him up, saying, Stand up, I too am just a man. As he talked with him, he entered and found many people assembled. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a man who is a Jew to associate with a foreigner or to visit him. And yet God has shown me that I should not call any man unholy or unclean. That is why I came without even raising any objection 
when I was sent for. So I asked, for what reason you have sent for me? Cornelius says, four days ago to this very hour, I was praying in my house during the ninth hour. And behold, a man stood before me in shining garments. And he said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Therefore, send to Joppa and invite Simon, who is also called Peter, to come to you. He is staying at the house of Simon the tanner by the sea. So I sent for you immediately, and you have been kind enough to come. Now then, we are all here, present before God, to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. Well, so Cornelius and Peter both exhibited great obedience and faith. And we're going to talk about both of them, but I want to start with talking about Cornelius. So Cornelius was a seeker. He was a devout, God-fearing man. We know that he gave alms and prayed continuously. But Cornelius obeyed the angel's directions and sent for Peter. And we learned from verse 33 that we just read that he sent for Peter immediately. He didn't wait. He didn't consult. He sent for Peter immediately. Well, this reminds me of Joseph's response when the angel told him in a dream to take Mary as his wife. And the text tells us in Matthew 1.24 that he, quote, awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary Mary as his wife. And Cornelius, in the same manner, was obedient. When Sherry and I were raising our kids, we had this thing called first-time obedience that we were hoping for. That was so that we didn't tell the kids six times what to do. Maybe they would do it on the first time we did it. They did pretty well. But I learned that was really more about parenting than it was about children's obedience. Well, Cornelius exhibited great faith in that he gathered his relatives and close friends together, and it wasn't just a few people. Verse 27 tells us that when Peter entered, he found many people assembled. Now, this is pretty amazing if you think about it. So Cornelius has a dream. He sends some people off. And so as the men are returning with Peter and the Jewish Christians, well, the men probably texted Cornelius about 30 minutes out, hey, we're almost there. Grit the groups together, right? And maybe did a little Snapchat, or maybe they were fine friends on the iPhone, right? <laughs> well, there was no phones, obviously, no Snapchat, none of that stuff. <laughs> what a glorious time that must have been. So, but seriously, Cornelius sends the men off having no idea or how long it might take for Peter to to be found. Was Peter even at Simon's house or had he gone to somewhere else? They had no idea. They didn't know when Peter would return or if he would return. So to me, Cornelius inviting his family and close friends together, as we see, they were waiting for him when he returned. They exhibited great faith. These folks could have been there for days or weeks but yet they were waiting for Peter to return. Now, Peter had a different challenge. The text says in verse 17 that he was greatly perplexed, greatly perplexed at the vision he had seen on the rooftop, and yet he followed the urging of the Spirit to go downstairs. He listened to the men. He invited them in, which was problematic by itself since they were Gentiles. Food and fellowship was a big deal. Gentiles, as I've mentioned, were considered unclean, And therefore, sharing a meal together was problematic. But then again, tanners, like Simon, were also considered ceremonially unclean, and yet Peter was staying with one. So lots of things were changing for for Peter. 
The text tells us that the next day, Peter went up with them to Cornelius' house, who was a Gentile. When Peter arrived, Cornelius bowed to Peter, but Peter explained that he too was just a man. He asks him to stand back up, which is interesting if you really think about it, because in the flesh of a man, praise would have been something that Peter would have definitely enjoyed. But instead, he refocused Cornelius and his family upon the Lord. Peter explained to his audience in verse 28 that it was unlawful for a man who is a Jew to associate with a foreigner or to visit him, but that God showed him that he should, quote, not call any man unholy or unclean, referencing his vision on the rooftop. Verse 15 said, what God has cleansed no longer consider unholy. You see, this wasn't about food. kind of was, but it was really about people. And see, God knew that he was about to send Peter to the Gentiles and that his resistance would be based on the fact that they were an unclean people based on Jewish tradition. But Peter exhibited great faith in that he obeyed even though he didn't understand what was happening. In fact, verse 29 says that he came without even raising any objection. The text tells us that after this explanation, Peter asked Cornelius why he sent for him. Of course, Cornelius explains his vision in verses 30 to 33, emphasizing that he sent for him immediately and that they were, quote, all here present before God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. So both Cornelius and Peter were obedient and faithful to the Lord's direction. And let's not make any mistake, but understand that the Lord of all creation was guiding both men. The Lord of all creation was directing and guiding both men. They were simply faithful and obedient to God's direction. And what we see next is that there is no partiality in the gospel message and no partiality in the fellowship of believers. Praise God. So read with me, beginning or continuing in verse 34. Acts 10, verse 34. Opening his mouth, Peter said, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality. But in every nation, the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. The word which he sent to the sons of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, for he is Lord of all. You yourselves know the thing which took place throughout all Judea, starting from Galilee, after the baptism which John proclaimed. You know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit, and with power, and how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. We are witnesses of all the things he did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They also put him to death by hanging him on a cross. God raised him up on the third day and granted that he become visible, not to all people, but to witnesses who were chosen beforehand by God, that is to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. And he ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly testify that this is the one who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. Of him, all the prophets bear witness that through his name, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. Everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. So we see that 
There is no partiality in the gospel message. Peter delivers the gospel message, but first he clarifies that now, as a result of hearing Cornelius' testimony, he most certainly understands that God is not one to show partiality, but in every nation, the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. Well, that's pretty amazing, but wait a minute, is, is that a new gospel? It talks about good deeds and works. Is that a works-based gospel? So all I have to do is be fearful of the Lord and perform good deeds? That's not what it's saying at all. But let's break this down a little bit so that we understand. The bottom line, as I believe, is that without faith, fear of the Lord and good deeds are not possible. The text tells us that every nation... Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the remotest parts of the earth, every nation, not just Jewish nations or peoples, though that's how it seemed to the apostles to begin with. But Peter is experiencing God's direction. Now it is clear that the gospel was to go to the Gentiles as well. It's a pretty big transition. Now let's look at some terms. Fear God, what does that mean? Is that how my relationship with the Lord should be based on fear? Fear? I'm to fear God? What does that mean? Well, it's the same fear that leads to wisdom described in Proverbs 1.7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Well, fear in this context can be viewed as reverential awe, respect, or perhaps worshipful submission. Well, so what about and does what is right? Doing what is right seems to be related to fearing God. The result of reverential awe and worshipful submission is the one that might do what is right. But aren't these things the result of faith? Is it possible to assume a posture of worshipful submission or reverential awe without faith in God? And I believe that these attributes described in verse 35 are in fact a result of faith and worshipful submission to God. And ultimately, as a result, Cornelius' heart was ready for the gospel message. So Peter explained that the message was for men in every nation, and he began to share the gospel. So let's look again. Verse 36, Peter explains that the word was sent to the sons of Israel and that they were told to preach peace through Jesus Christ because he is Lord of all. Not some, but Lord of all. Verse 37, Peter then says, now you know the story. Basically saying, what you've heard is true of all the things that took place throughout Judea, starting in Galilee, after the baptism which John proclaimed. What you've heard was true. Verse 38, he reminds them that God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and he went about doing good and healing all those who were oppressed by the devil because God was with him. Verses 39 through 41 tell us that Peter tells them, that we are witnesses, speaking of the apostles, of all the things he did, and ultimately they, Jesus' people, the ones he came to save, put him to death by hanging him on a cross, or your version might say on a tree. But in a miraculous work, God raised him on the third day and granted that he become visible, not to everyone, but to those of us chosen beforehand by God. And we, Peter says, ate and drank with him, the risen Christ, after he rose from the dead. Can you imagine that? Verse 
42, Peter explains that before his ascension, Jesus ordered them to preach to the people and solemnly testify that this is, quote, the one who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and dead. In verse 43, he continues by telling them that this is the one who all the prophets bear witness to and that through his name, Jesus' name, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. Everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. So Peter gives a stunning eyewitness account of Jesus' life. He tells him that God was with him, his Holy Spirit and power. He healed and did good for the people all over the nation. He was killed by his own people. He was raised on the third day. His disciples saw him and ate with him after he was risen. He ordered them to testify about him being the anointed one, the prophesied one, the judge of the living and dead, and that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. So through faith and obedience, the Lord brought Peter to Cornelius' family. Peter explained that there's no partiality with God and shared the gospel message in clear and succinct fashion. The message of Christ, life, his death, and resurrection was and still is for all people. And what happened next blew everyone's mind, the Spirit's work and the people's response. So let's continue reading in verse 44. So Peter's giving his message And verse 44 says, While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message. All the circumcised believers who came with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they were hearing them speaking with tongues and exalting God. Then Peter answered, Surely no one can refuse water for these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit, just as we did, can he? And he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, and they asked him to stay on for a few days. So the text tells us that in verse 44 and 46, that while Peter was still speaking, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message. I think this may be one of my favorite lines in this passage, but while Peter was still speaking. It wasn't a result of something that they said. It wasn't a result of an altar call or a specific prayer or a tent revival or fill in the blank. While Peter was still speaking, they believed. They heard and believed, and the Holy Spirit fell upon them, and they began speaking in tongues and exalting God. So just imagine the faith of Cornelius and Peter, the delivery of an impartial gospel, and the work of the Spirit led to the first recorded Gentile group coming to faith in Christ, which is pretty amazing. And this is pretty amazing and pretty great for those of us who aren't Jewish, isn't it? But the gospel message brought salvation to the Gentiles. But there was a problem. Jesus was the Jewish Messiah, And no one was going to believe Peter when he went home and told them that these Gentiles believed in the person and work of Jesus Christ, leading to forgiveness of sins and eternal salvation. Ah, but wait, there's more. 
Verse 45, recall the circumcised believers, or Jewish Christians, that accompanied Peter to Cornelius' house. The text tells us that these Jewish Christians who came with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles. And they were hearing them speak in tongues, just like what happened to the apostles at Pentecost. So picture this with me. Six Jewish Christians, and we know there were six because in Acts eleven twelve it tells us that. Six Jewish Christians accompany Peter to Cornelius' house, a house he shouldn't have even been going to. They hear some crazy stories of visions, and they quite possibly grumble all the way to Caesarea. Peter, are you sure this is what we're to be doing? I mean, I was kind of enjoying Simon. I mean, he had those fluffy rugs all over the place. It was kind of like you could put your feet on your pet. You know, maybe we should call that carpet. You know, we should get some of that when we go back home, right? I mean, Peter, do you really know what you're doing? I mean, by the way, your dream, we're all super excited about these foods that now we get to eat. I mean, can we just stop at the next town for a bacon double cheeseburger? Maybe with some hatch green chilies? Extra order of fries, the crispy kind. Oh, never mind. But about this time, Peter has got to be wondering, what in the world did I invite these guys with me for? But if you pay attention, these six Jewish Christians are paramount to the story as we continue. You see, they listen to Jewish believe the, the Jewish believers listen to Peter share the good news. And they're amazed that the Spirit came upon the Gentiles. And by the way, the Spirit probably came upon them as well, since the text tells us that the Spirit came upon all those who were listening to the message. The Jewish Christians are important for the story, as is the act of the Spirit and the proof of tongues. It was the same scene at Pentecost when the apostles received the Spirit and spoke in tongues so that all people heard them speaking in their own language. The gospel was shared at that point. Many understood and many came to faith. Well, so what tongue do you think the Gentiles were speaking in? Well, it doesn't tell us. But I like to think maybe that they were speaking fluent Hebrew so that the Jewish Christians could understand their exaltations to God. That's just me. I don't know what the answer is. But regardless, the Spirit was proof of the Gentiles' faith and more importantly, the impartiality of God. These six men would testify to what they saw to those back home. Well, Peter orders the Gentiles to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. They ask him to stay on for a few days. And so in our story so far, we've seen great obedience and faith. We've seen an impartial gospel. We've seen the Spirit move people to faith. And then they all lived happily ever after in perfect harmony. <laughs> Not exactly. Now, spoiler alert, I'm going to talk a little bit about chapter 11. And Sorry, Todd. But bottom line is the people go, these, these folks go back home, and the Jewish brethren that receive them are not pleased. They begin to question Peter. Peter explains all that happened, and ultimately they glorify God saying, well, then God granted to those Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. 
Case closed, right? Not exactly. You see, throughout Acts chapters 11 through 14, the gospel spreads, persecution continues, Paul begins his missionary journeys, starting in the synagogues, and then to all who would listen. And then in Acts chapter 15, the scene with Peter and Cornelius is at the center of one of the most impactful elder meetings of all time. You see, it had become known that some Jewish Christians were teaching their Gentile brethren that they needed to be circumcised and uphold the Jewish law in order to be saved. To them, faith in Christ had to be paired with circumcision in order for them to be saved, Acts 15.1. Paul and Barnabas, on their journeys, they call upon the apostles and elders regarding the issue because on their journeys they've seen some of the same things. The apostles and elders come together in plurality of leadership to consider the matter. Peter eventually stands up and he explains all that happened at Cornelius' house, saying in Acts 15.9, God made, quote, no distinction between us, speaking of the Jews, and them, speaking of the Gentiles, cleansing their hearts by faith. Peter says, don't put a yoke around their neck that even they, or excuse me, that even we as Jews can't bear. We are saved by the grace of God, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, in the same way that they are, Peter says. Praise God. Well, Paul and Barnabas give some testimony from what they had witnessed. And then James, Jesus' half-brother and the head of the Jerusalem council, considers Scripture and ultimately rules that the Gentile believers should not be held accountable to the law, but they should avoid four things. Number one, meat sacrificed to idols. Number two, blood. Number three, things strangled. And number four, fornication. A letter sent to the churches to clarify this ruling. So if there's no partiality in God's gospel, then there should be unity in the believers of Christ. Paul explains in the letter to the Ephesians in the first three chapters, he explains the doctrine of unity as the two groups, Jews and Gentiles, are grafted together to form one group. And in chapters 4 through 6, he poses a practical call to unity within the body of Christ. And they all lived happily ever after. Still, not exactly. So as we wrap up today, the Christian church is still fragmented by varying denominations, born from fractured doctrinal positions. All, by the way, man-made. God didn't make denominations, men did. And in most cases, well-meaning men trying to protect some aspect of tradition or focus. But nonetheless, even within the Christian faith, we are still somewhat fractured. But God is calling His church and His people to unity with one another. He's given us an example through the story of Peter and Cornelius that obedience and faith are paramount to our walks with God. That there's no partiality or bias within the gospel message. Partiality and bias have no place within the church. We've been called to share the good news to the remotest, remotest parts of the earth, which include our back alleys, our front yards, our workplaces, the athletic fields, business part partners, rich people, poor people, friends, family, foes, etc. We've been called to share the good news. And the Spirit is with us. The Helper will bring to remembrance all that He teaches us, John 14, 26. 
So if this is our call, and it is our call, isn't it? Matthew 28, 19 to 20 says, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So in light of what we've been called to, let me leave you with three application or challenge questions. Now, Todd couched them last week as expanded vision questions. So we can continue to expand our vision of God, and in view of the light of His impartial gospel, we can examine our hearts as we ask the following questions. By the way, these are for me as well. Number one, what is God asking of you? What is God asking of you? Is there something that's been nagging your heart, but you've been unable or unwilling to figure out what it's all about? Well, pray and ask God to help you through the urging of His Holy Spirit to help you understand. What's God asking of you? Number two, where has the fear of man or stubbornness led to partiality in your life? Where has the fear of man or stubbornness led to partiality in your life? Maybe you know what God's asking you to do, but for some reason there's stubbornness or hardness of your heart or partiality or bias that's crept in. Maybe we think, well, if they aren't willing to help themselves, then why should I help them? Or I really don't have time or really don't have the resources to be involved. Well, the reality is that Peter could have made any number of excuses not to go to see Cornelius. But he observed, or excuse me, he obeyed in faith. And the question for us is, will we? Number three, who is he calling you to love today? Who is he calling you to love today? Maybe the Lord has placed someone on your heart that needs to be cared for. Maybe they're a believer, or maybe they aren't. Or maybe they're even hostile toward the gospel. Does that let us off the hook? No. But if we truly understand that there's no partiality in the gospel, then we must call upon the Holy Spirit to soften our hearts, remove bias, incline our ears toward the Spirit's urging so that we might share the love of Christ with those around us. If we simply remember what a glorious day it was when the Spirit drew us to Himself, and now we look forward to that glorious day of His return, then why wouldn't we want to share the story of that glorious day with others? Well, as I close in prayer, the band's going to come up, and when I finish, they'll lead us in a final worship song. And I want to thank you for allowing me to share what the Lord has placed on my heart today. It's been a tremendous blessing to me. Let me pray. Father, thank you for giving us the message of Cornelius and Peter. I thank you that by your grace and mercy, we might be able to understand the obedience and faith of these two men, that their obedience to your guidance and direction through the Holy Spirit led to a place where the impartiality of your gospel would be on display for all to see. And Father, as we Listen to your spirit. I pray that you would allow us to take the salvation that comes in the name of Jesus and to share that love with those around us, those that you've put us in contact with. 
Father, I'm thankful for Melanie Park Church, for the people that are here. What a blessing it is to me and my family to have spent uh, this time with, with this church family. And so, Father, as we close our time today, I ask that you will be with us as we leave here to share your love with those that we come in contact with this week. Father, we love you. We thank you for your son. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.